Hello, welcome back. This is episode 63 of The Better Business Show. Thanks for coming back to us and thanks for tuning in. And thanks also for your feedback on the last couple of episodes uh, that we've put out there. Of course, we had Amrit uh, Chandan from Acceleron on the show last week who made an explicit call for partners and also employees. So if you uh, or somebody you know is interested in the budgeting market for lithium-ion batteries or circular economy thinking, battery reprocessing or you just fancy being part of a hugely exciting sustainable business venture uh, and why wouldn't you then um, have a listen to last week's show and seek out Amrit and the team at Acceleron. Uh, of course before that we uh, broadcast a special episode recorded live at an event hosted by Nestle uh, and it's f- by far our most popular show we've ever recorded which is which is great and I think that says a lot about both the the appetite for knowing and understanding more about what big about what big business is doing to respond to some of our biggest environmental and social challenges. There's certainly that. Uh, But also the subject matter, I think, really seemed to grab the imagination, the future of food. So it's a theme that we return to this week. uh, And we've got a great story coming up for you uh, very, very shortly. Of course, if you do like what you hear on the show, please do help support us by tweeting and posting and sharing your thoughts on on what you've heard or just by pasting the link so that other friends and colleagues and, and family members can, can easily tune in too. That'd be really good. Uh, of course, you can subscribe to the show uh, via SoundCloud or iTunes if you like. I know many of you will be hitting the beach probably in the coming weeks for the summer. Um, so why not subscribe now? And then make your way through our ever-growing back catalogue of stories, all of which are fairly evergreen and hopefully really useful stories and insights from some quite amazing entrepreneurs and innovators and business owners. So please do that while the summer plays out. We've sort of come off that weekly travelator of of publishing episodes every Monday, so they might be slightly more sporadic than they have been, which is exactly why subscribing is a good idea. But uh, I'm around for much of the summer and we'll be doing our best to hit you with yet more great storytelling uh, uh, all summer and, and beyond. So stay tuned. In the last couple of decades, the global production and consumption of meat have increased rapidly. According to the World Watch Institute, worldwide meat production has trebled in the last four decades and increased 20% in just the last 10 years, with developed countries eating nearly double the quantity of people in the developing world. Now consider the environmental impact of animal farming production, all of the inputs that go into keeping an animal alive, well and ready for slaughter so that it can be put onto our plates. Large-scale meat production is having serious implications for the world's climate. Animal waste releases methane and nitrous oxide, greenhouse gases that are 25 and 300 times more potent than carbon dioxide, respectively. About 40% of the world's land surface is used to keep us all fed, and the vast majority of that land, about 30% of the world's total ice-free surface, is used not to raise grains, fruits and vegetables that are directly fed to us human beings, but to support the chickens and the pigs and the cattle that we eventually eat. Livestock production, which includes meat, milk, eggs, contributes 40% of global agricultural gross domestic product, provides income for more than 1.3 billion people and uses one-third of the world's fresh water. There may be no other single human activity that has a bigger impact on the planet than the raising of livestock. So, So what to do about this situation? 
Well, this week we meet a company that plans to use tissue engineering technology developed within the biomedicine industry to transform how protein is produced for food consumption. As you're about to find out from Iktud Dunsford, founder of Cellular Agriculture, this is a business at an incredibly early stage. But it's a venture that will not only turn its back on a way of life for his family farm business that has been in existence for more than 300 years, but it's something which has the ability to turn our food system completely on its head by promoting the concept of lab-grown meat. Enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Better Business Show. Uh, set, set the scene for us. Uh, where are you right now? What are you, what are you looking at? I have visions of you drinking a strong cup of tea and looking out across these vast pastures over there in Wales. Where, where are you now? So we're, we're on our family farm in West Wales. Uh, it's, it's considering it's, uh, it's the middle of summer. It's actually pouring with rain, very grey, miserable day. Um, I guess a traditional Welsh summer, really. But um, lush and green. Um, we're at the bottom of a valley. Our farm spans the side of one valley. So we, we get about a, 100 metres from sea level upwards. Okay. Uh, so we, we have a real cross-section of, kind of landscape here. And you're and the nearest city there is, is is it Swansea? You're down that way, isn't it? Yeah, in terms of yeah, city wise it's Swansea, towns is Llanelli and Carmarthen. So um Okay, okay. You know, it's kind of like two miles to a shop, eight miles to a town. You know, we're pretty rural really. Nice, nice. So, so tell us about your, your main business you're running right now. Uh this is Charcutier. Uh I mean that seems like a, a good place for us to start this conversation. This is the family business, right? This is is, it is, yeah. It's yeah. a diversification of our sort of uh, farming business. Uh, right. We, as a family, we farmed in the same valley for well over three hundred years. Um, I took over the farm from my uncle in two thousand and four, and at the time he'd sort of semi-retired from dairying, uh, but we were sort of a traditional mixed family farm, quite quite sort of standard in terms of size, in terms of of British family farms, really hitting the average of sixty-seven hectares. Um, and we did a bit of everything. When my uncle was farming, it was dairying, pigs, uh, sheep, cattle, a little bit of poultry. Um, but but when my partner Liesl and I moved to the farm in 2004, we sort of realised that that the um, the opportunities in some of the uh, sort of more commodity types of agriculture were, were kind of fading, and and right. the choice was either sort of grow bigger or or look to diversify, and and that's what we did. Right. Uh, and that's where the business came in. We we it wasn't actually something that was sort of, um, well, I knew I wanted to add value to, to primary produce from the farm, and right. meat wasn't actually something that I'd considered because it was something that we made for our own table, right. livestock on the farm, killed on the farm, processed in the traditional way, and it was just a part of what we did as a family to to supply food for the table rather than necessarily a business. So. Um, I think it was winter of 2010 that, that kind of got the idea. We'd looked at a couple of different things. Nothing had really worked. Oh. Uh, it was in 2010. I thought, well, actually, we get this glut of meat once a year that I process. And so since since moving to the farm, I've been playing around with different recipes and, and experimenting with more sort of Southern European uh, styles of product like salamis and air dried hams. And thought, well, actually, there might well be an opportunity to, to diversify and, and make some of these sort of specialist products. Yeah. Uh, so that. Did, yeah, and is is that where the you know how the success of the business is? That's what it's kind of fostered on. It's it's this playing around with with flavors and and coming up with something that you know will appeal to the to the. It's it's kind of a, quite a niche market, isn't it? Uh, we, yeah, I, I actually think that we, we often get told that we're super niche. So uh, we're 
we we always wanted to sell on quality because we've come from a family tradition. We 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 weren't necessarily in those those early days a technological company. We were a company that just made things the way that they used to be made, which yeah. were largely labor intensive. But you got got the best flavor from the product, and in some ways, that's what really kind of pushed us as a business and and got us some of the, the sort of high end customers that we that that we've secured and and got a name for ourselves as a business because we were just making things that were good quality and and tasted what you know, tasted good. Um, Quite often with things like bacon, for instance, we, we keep on getting told that we make bacon like it used to be. And um, and that's, you know, it's it's, it's hugely flavorful and it, it evokes food memories for people. So and that's a very, very strong thing with with food, that there's real emotional connection with people. Yeah. Um, so so for those that, that don't understand the process and, and some of the products you're making there, can you give us a just a, a sense of what what you're doing to, to create the products you are? So by by now um since since launching the business we've we've actually spread our wings slightly and i i tend to think of ourselves as being more of, of a meat science business so we make everything from your traditional bacons and sausages and black puddings and cooked hams all the way over to european products that are um cooked and smoked as well as air dried and and um and sort of really specialist things so so the the, the type of european sausages like bratwurst and boudin blanc boudin noirs um, Spanish chorizos, North American cooked sausages like frankfurters, uh, as as well as air dried products like salamis. Right. And 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 some of your customers are who? So um, we started the business through farmers markets and um, and to selling to small independent uh, shops and delis. But our kind of leading customers at the moment are the. The, the major food halls, places like Harrods, Fortman Mason, uh, as well as um, sort of Michelin-style chefs. So we've we've just started selling to a lady called Claire Smith. She's probably one of the most highly decorated female chefs in the UK, having had uh, three Michelin stars in her previous uh, kitchen. So yeah, those are the types of clients that that we now have. Right, right. And so that diverse that decision to diversify and really kind of go after a fairly niche market after operating for hundreds of years as a kind of you know traditional farm that that does lots of different things. I wonder how much the role of kind of the, the, the looking at kind of environmental sustainability played a, a part in that decision. Did it at all, or, or, or were there other factors at play? Was it purely an economic decision? No, it's definitely not not an economic one. We're we're not efficient in in really in our business. We've always just done what we we think is right rather than um, doing it for business reasons. We right. we don't really fit into the kind of the government support models of how businesses are supposed to do businesses, uh, supposed to do business. And you know that we've we've really concentrated on making the very best quality product possible. And and the the key part of that is is the the ingredient, which is the animal. So. Uh, if we if we consider the environment environmental sustainability of, of of the animal itself, we we try and retain the the widest natural biodiversity by by not only using um, rare breeds of animals that uh, to, to to retain those sort of traditional genetics, but also utilize a hus- husbandry system where they don't decimate land or, or, or kill the natural environmental biodiversity that that, that farmland has. But on top of that, we, we've We've stopped, I mean, a fair few years ago, we, we stopped utilizing uh, soya as part of the ration for the animals. Right. Honestly, well, with two reasons. There was a quality aspect, but also an environmental aspect in terms of uh, the effect on deforestation in, in places like uh, South America. Yeah. Um, and, and equally, we, we also, I mean, the, we, uh, 
in the, the pigs that we produce on our own farm and from producers that we buy, we ask for the use of a waste co-product from the food industry. So that would involve things like waste from the cheese industry or waste milk or yogurt from the dairy industry, uh, brewer's waste and waste beer from the brewing industry, as well as waste vegetables and bread and even pita dough. So anything we can get our hands on that, that sort of supplements the, the, the diet of, of those animals. And um, and then sort of last year we started a project with a cheese producer where they had no value for the male calves from the their dairy herd Um, and so we guaranteed to buy every single one of those and they utilized the way from their cheese production the waste from their cheese production as part of the the feed source for for those animals so it's and it's you know it's it's a it's it's building kind of an integrated system for us in 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 taking not just waste food products but animals that are often seen as waste within the 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 food chain so yeah uh, quality products from them Absolutely. And it seems that in, in farming, there would be lots of opportunity to do that type of type of deal with, with fellow farmers. Do you, do you see much of that sort of thing going on in the sector? There's definitely, there's some growth, but we're very much at an early stage because even with the, um, the producer that we buy these calves from, they're an extremely progressive um, farming family. And um, the, the model that we have for purchasing the animals is based on a cost of production uh, plus premium. Right. And just approaching them and, and explaining to them that we actually wanted to, to understand their costs and, and to pay them a fair price uh, was a little bit of a, a shock to them because nobody had really done that. In, in sort of 44 years of farming, nobody had yeah. come and said, well, actually, what's, what's your cost of production? I will give you X amount on top of that. Yeah, so, right. That that doesn't you know that transparency doesn't often happen. So, um, for for us, it's it's a it's a case of of securing a supply chain, making sure that we have those things coming through, and that's why we think everybody along the supply chain needs to to have that profitability. And we're not talking about huge amounts of money here. We just make you know just make enough money to live, really. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we we don't really with food. I always think the food's too cheap. That 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 you know we we expect food to be cheap, but at one time. Our uh, our expenditure um, was over fifty percent of our expenditure was on food, and now it accounts for less than ten percent. Uh. And that's like computers and televisions and holidays and smartphones and all those things, uh. they weren't part of our world sixty years ago, and and now they're ex- extremely important to us. So the, the the shift from the cost of food has has changed dramatically in that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting to to hear how uh, charcuterie has has evolved and that diversification. You're on the cusp of another significant shift. Tell us all about cellular agriculture. So I went to a conference in Maastricht in the Netherlands two years ago, and it was billed as the first symposium in cultured meat. And I'd, I'd gone as part of a sort of a study just to just to sort of understand a little bit more about um, an evolving uh, part of the agricultural industry. So the idea is. It's the, largely the production of animal products, but without the use of animals. So the utilization of fermentation technology to produce milk um, and, and the use of sort of technology that's been devised within biomedicine for the growth of, uh, of tissue, something like leather or, or meat, for example. So right. I, I'd, gone to this, um, I'd gone to this conference just to kind of have an, a basic understanding of of what this technology was and how how it could be appropriated and what the impact would be uh, on traditional agriculture and it just sort of blew my mind really so you come back from the conference and and then what happens 
so at the conference, I met quite a few people from the UK that were sort of um, academics within this uh, sort of world, uh, one of whom was Dr. Marianne Ellis from Bath University. And her master's design students uh, were running a project on on the idea of a cultured meat processing facility. So we, we helped out as a sort of industrial partner with Bath University on supplying them some figures on both on traditional agriculture, but also on processing, just to have an idea of how cost effective this type of business would be with, with the current technology. And, and that's how we really got involved uh, initially with, with sort of just a theory of, of, of producing meat uh, through, through cell culturing. And um, it just became a sort of, or has become a roller coaster of, uh, of emotions. Um, and it just, uh, an, an email from Downing Street from one of the senior advisors asking whether uh, a group of us would, would then advise on on a, on a group of alternative proteins. Um, and, you know, just, just starting to think then, well, actually, well, there is something, there really is, some, is something in this and that, that we, we should really in the UK start looking to, to perhaps commercialize the idea because we have we have such great academics yeah um, and you know quite often that commercialization happens overseas and just felt that with with the breadth of knowledge that we have we had a very different view of of this kind of technology to quite a few others in the world that, that are working on it that we actually wanted to find a, an opportunity for agriculture rather than something that could potentially decimate it yeah yeah so you call them you, it's, it's referred to as cultured meats is it that's right. Well, it's, it's, it has a few names. It was lab-grown meat, in vitro meat, clean meat. Uh, cultured meat is kind of the current term. It probably won't be the the consumer term. You know, it's uh, mm. the use of lab-grown sounds quite Frankensteinish. Yeah, uh, but you, you kind of have to remember that that it's it's a concept that's produced in the lab initially, rather than something that's manufactured long term in a laboratory. Yeah. Uh, I mean, realistically, for for a consumer imagining what a cultured meat factory would look like, it would look quite similar to something like a brewery, because they're really big stainless steel vessels that this sort of this this happen, these bioreactors are. So they they kind of they they fit into what we currently have within the food industry. They're nothing particularly new. So um, in in a, in a nutshell, if it, give, give us an example of a product that might hit the shelves in a few years' time. That's from from start to finish. What does what does the process look like for this kind of uh, cultured or, or lab-grown meat. What, what is, how, does, how does it work? So you still need an animal. You need an animal to get that primary cell, the, right. the, cell, the cell that actually multiplies to become meat. So essentially, if we think it's, this isn't a replacement, it's not like uh, the, those replacers that are out there, or, or even um, there are a number of burgers that are on the market at the moment that are made from, uh, for made from a plant-based burgers, and they're right. supposed to replicate the idea of meat. Well, yeah. chemically and, and nutritionally, this is meat. It, it is, you know, it's exactly the same. Yeah. There's actually been some tests already to, to, to prove that you, know, you can't actually differentiate between uh, meat produced from an animal and, 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 and meat produced within a laboratory setting at this point. So right. we, we, that first cell is taken from the animal. There's a couple of different ways in, in doing that. that. That's either taken by live biopsy or, or taken at the point of slaughter. And um, and then that, that, that cell is grown in the same way that, that we would grow tissue for the biomedicine industry, um, it, by, by, by feeding it the necessary nutrients it needs to multiply and, and become something more substantial that, that, you know, and something that we would term as meat. So I have right. to think that in the first instance, it, it probably isn't what we think traditionally as meat. It, you know, it, it, we're not growing a steak, for instance. Mm. We're, we're growing sort of a meat ingredient in the same way that we'd go into a sausage or a burger, for instance. So okay. it's, it's something relatively simple in this first generation. But the long-term goal, obviously, is to produce something that's 
that's you know the say the finest Kobe Kobe steak or, or anything that you imagine as as a traditional meat product can be produced or should be able to be produced in the future. Yeah, and from that one cell, you can multiply, you know, in, yep. in infinitely, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the that depends on the age of the cell and how quickly it does that, and 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 it's it's yeah, it's 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 exactly the same process as that cell would 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 um, would multiply within the body. So essentially, we're just replicating what the body does. Yeah, uh, right. It's just and, it's a quicker process than building the whole animal. It's incredible. This is a this is an approach that is that goes against everything that your family has done for for centuries, isn't it? It it is, and to be perfectly honest, it took me about six months to get my head around it completely. But as as a farmer and as a food producer that works largely within the sustainable food movement, mm. um, I kind of came to the the reality a few years ago that as hard as we work in push, pushing the message that we need to be more sustainable, mm. the reality is is that the world in general isn't really hearing that message. Mm. We tend to preach the same converted, you know, and we we get we get the so we get the few additional people, but we're not really speaking to to the masses. So, if we carry on on the same path that we're going with with the population rise, there's going to be real food shortages in thirty years' time. So, uh, coupled with the fact that we're pushing more and more intensive systems of farming, and those are quite destructive to the to the planet. You know, we see more deforestation, more soil erosion, more land use, more water use. Um, and all this contributes to climate change. The reality is, with with this of growing population and the need to be more intensive, we just won't have the resources needed to feed everyone. Uh, so it's, it, I just saw it as a way of possibly um, tackling some of that product problem. Yeah. So this is almost a, a fast track to sustainable agriculture. This yeah, is the, the, yeah. the, the most efficient way of, 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 of that happening. I mean, where are you at with, with, with the business right now? How, how far are, we, are you away from actually you know, commercializing, making this a reality? So I think to be realistic, we're, we're probably looking around four years' time before um, that there's a product. Uh, and that's not, not because we couldn't make a product quicker than that. It's because this is a new technology and we need a certain level of regulation. Um, So, so essentially I think we could probably have a prototype within a year quite easily. Um, But, but post that we, we'd we'd probably need a good two years to to get the regulation to, to, to prove the safety of something that's, you know, essentially a completely new novel product for, for a consumer market. And and also there's that engagement to get people to understand what it is. Um, if we think of something like GM technology in the UK or in Europe, mm. um, you know it, it's it's viewed in a very different way that, than than it is in the United States. And so the, the although I have my own opinions on GM, that the, there's there's a certain way in which GM could have been handled differently. Uh, mm. So that the, there are lessons to be learned from from how new technologies are uh, introduced to people. Yeah, it's it's, it's going to be it's a, it's going to be a journey uh, to say the least. Uh, yeah. So w- w- you mentioned the the companies making you know burgers that kind of have the, the feel and taste of a, of real meat that are kind of plant based. Are there, I mean, what what are the companies you look at for inspiration um, in this space? Are there others out there doing something similar that you look at and think, yeah, I'd love to love to go there in that sort of direction? Um, it's, it's, it's a relatively small field. And to be honest, a lot of the, the companies that are, are within cultured meat are keeping their, their cards relatively close to their chest. 
Right. Um, so, so in in terms of those, it, it's that's difficult. But but the, the plant based alternative ones, it, it's I mean, Impossible Foods has been with the Impossible Burger, and that's utilizing. It, it's a mixture of cellular agriculture and um, and the reformulation of a, of a food product. So it's it's essentially right. a, a soya protein um, uh, uh, burger, where the 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 utilization of cellular agricultural technology is. Uh, fermentation to produce a a flavour that, that that mimics heme, the the you know, the element within within blood that gives you that irony flavour. Mm. So it's it's you know, it, it's a it's a melding of two technologies, but it's it's not meat. It doesn't give you the complete protein that that meat provides, uh, and it gives you flavour, but but it it goes some way towards giving you uh, uh, the mimicking of meat, but not not sort of a an exact le- replica of it. Yeah. Um, these things, you know, they're, they're, they, they are cheaper alternatives. They're, they're quicker. They're quicker technologies to get to market. Um, but, but realistically, large, large-scale businesses from those, um, I don't see them as being particularly disruptive. You know, so it's mm. uh, this is quite different. The cultured meat itself could potentially, um, you know, transform the meat industry. It's, uh, it's, you know, it really can can have the the, the possibility to change the world. It can disrupt the meat industry. It can disrupt kind of consumer purchasing as well. I mean, it can, can t- completely disrupt the, the retail space, absolutely. And the both kind of guests need to, to play catch up. But also, th- is there a danger that you kind of, you know, you, you kind of destroy farming as we know it as well? Well, I, I don't think so. I think that the the right approach is needed. So where I see there being um, a real opportunity for agriculture is the fact that we still need that primary source for that initial cell. Now, the the world, you know, the 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 majority of, of sort of commodity food is produced through highly intensive systems where we have uh, hybridized, um, genetically developed animals that that sort of bear no resemblance really to their um, their their original native breeds that that would have you know would have been the base genetics for those animals. And for me, I I kind of see that it's 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 securing those base genetics is what this technology can do because part of the process for us would be uh, to scope all these native breeds from across the world mm. to understand what the quality of the the meats and the fats, the proteins um, are from all these animals, so that it, that's essentially the the kind of the DNA catalog in in from from which to to draw the base material to yeah. produce the the you know the food. So it's 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 actually taking a leaf out of the book of the geneticists because we're we're mimicking the way that they actually uh, produce the animals that they need that are the most efficient. But in some ways, because we're utilizing cells and not animals, mm. it doesn't matter if it's a slow growing animal. It doesn't matter if it puts on a lot of fat. You know, it doesn't matter if it has a you know it has a, a small number of offspring. All those factors that 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 we consider to be crucial in terms of intensive production and commercial production just fall by the wayside, and we we can actually look at quality. Um, and because we're only drawing a cell, which is considerably smaller, that's that's where we have a distinct difference. Um, yeah, yeah. But also in in the systems, because the value of an animal is it changes. Then we we still need those animals, and those animals will still go for for traditional meat. Um, and and you know a percentage of those cells will be harvested. Well, that means that we need less animals, and having less animals means that we have more time, and more time means that we can look after those animals better. But mm. also, in, in in the cases of large ruminants, we can actually look back to more natural ways of farming. If we consider something like the bison in North America, um, 
you know, a natural wild animal that would roam the plains. They they were an intrinsic part of keeping the grasslands in North North America um, in a stable environmental condition. Now, there's no reason that we can't utilize cattle here in, in the UK uh, in, in sort of grazing in, in dense patterns to, to actually revive our, our pasture land back to more traditional wildflower meadows um, because we don't need the efficiency of, of more modern uh, farming systems. So there's... Yeah. There's definitely a model to be to be created, I think, that, that that creates an opportunity both in food production for cellular for for those within cellular agriculture, but also for traditional primary agriculture. And when you in, you look at that and that that vision of what you're just you're just describing there, I mean, how how far off do you think that might be? Well, I'd, I'd hope it's within my my lifetime. I mean, I, this is definitely a, a long term project. You know, yeah. I think that. Um, the reality is this is a 30 plus year project in order to, to for this to be a, a commercial technology that, that that's that's commonplace within an industry um if we if you consider you know one of the earlier cellular agricultural products is something like corn um and you know that that, that was devised in the 1960s didn't make it to market until the 80s uh and now sort of 30 nearly 40 years um since its its launch uh, it still isn't able to compete with traditional meat on food service costs, um, and so therefore it's it's largely seen as a, as a retail product. You know that the efficiency of that process hasn't yet been met, and and I think that's the main challenge within uh, within cultured meat and within all the other cellular agricultural products is is reaching that that sort of that that that, that cheapest product that we're trying to to compete against and getting yeah. to that. So until we get there, it's it's very hard. You know, we have projections as a business of of when that'll be, but but the reality is we don't we just don't know what the science and the research will throw up, and and whether we can fast track to that, or whether it does mean years and years of research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the the challenges being faced by by big food and and you know number of we we looked at on the show a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and the, the next fifty to hundred years is going to be absolutely fascinating. And and I wonder whether someone that is working on the land is more acutely aware of some of those big problems being faced by uh, you know the agricultural sector and the need for sustainable agriculture. Do you do you see? I mean, do, do you are you conscious of this on a daily basis? Given your your connection to the land, are you you know what what, what do you see happening on on the ground? Because you say lots of people are completely oblivious to the need for a for a sh- you know a complete step change in agriculture, but are you more acutely aware of it do you think well i think most farmers aren't because farmers enjoy being with their animals or being on the land that's what they like to do they, they don't mm. generally like you know to, to be away from that and so they, they, they obviously understand they see the difference in the seasons and they see they see i mean i'm even where we are here we, we can see the, the levels of soil erosion in in, in our land and, and we I, I wouldn't have thought that we were a particularly destructive destructive farm but but it happens it's happening as part part of what we do what, what, what I, well, the opportunity that I had, I had a Nuffield farming scholarship and so spent a period over two years traveling the world, looking at other agricultural systems across the world. And, and that's what really brought it home for me was, was traveling, you know, going to China, going to yeah. Brazil, going all across North America and, and, and Europe and, and, and seeing agricultural practice, seeing where we were, we were behind or where we were ahead and, and just comparing what was, you know, how, 
you know, actually seeing with my own eyes, seeing deforestation in the Amazon, I mean, that, it, it was horrendous seeing how, what the effect of what milk I buy here in, in the supermarkets can actually have on, on, on the Amazon, you know, having something the other side of the world. Things like that were, were kind of really sort of brought it home to me that, 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 um, that I, you know, we're complicit in these things. We, we don't necessarily realize it. We don't necessarily, and we definitely don't take it on board or, or take any, um, any ownership of, of that guilt. Um, but, but we are within any choice that we make within food. We, we have a global impact nowadays because food and agriculture are, are a global commodity. Yeah. And, and having looked at this, this subject over the last sort of few weeks on the show and, and having written about it elsewhere, it's, you know, I love, I love the idea and the impact that something like uh, what you're going to be doing next uh, could have on, on the whole market and the whole, you know, the whole retail space as well. So I think it's fascinating. Um, thank you for uh, spending some time with us and telling us all about it. You're welcome. Thank you. to Dunsford, CEO and founder of Cellular Agriculture there. A very exciting uh, time for him and the, and the team over there in the Welsh Valleys. Lovely to talk to him and catch up on how things are progressing. Cellular was one of the 20 amazing cleantech startups that I was lucky enough to meet uh, as part of the latest Clean and Cool mission to San Francisco, which I talked about a couple of weeks ago. I urge you all to visit the Clean and Cool website at cleanandcool.com. Uh, where you can find out more about um, Cellular, uh, as well as 19 other amazing companies on the cusp of greatness, uh, obviously including our guests Acceleron from last week. As ever, please do let me know what you think of the show in the usual way. Email me, tomidle at narrativematters.co.uk, or you can find me on LinkedIn, or you can tweet me at tomidle. Anyway, that is it for another week. Thanks again for tuning in. Please don't forget to spread the word about the show. Uh, Subscribe, as I said before, on iTunes or SoundCloud if you haven't already done that. Uh, We'll be back again very soon. So until then, goodbye.